Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast for Buddenbrook's book for chapter two. The revolution has begun. Does anyone want a TLDR? What this means? TLDR says, a swim said the mama fishy. Too long, didn't read. Recession and potato famine causes widespread discontent and hunger in the 1840s. France rises up in revolution, and then the German Confederation states do as well. To avoid the overthrow of the government like in France, German nobility, conservatives, try to work with the revolutionary faction, liberals and democrats, to form a different sort of government. However, the whole thing collapses into infighting amongst the L's and the D's and the C's. Oh, sorry. The, libs, the, lib, the Liberals and the Democrats start fighting amongst themselves and the Conservatives, or the German nobility, regain control. All right. The populace loses interest in the whole thing, except for radicals, and the whole hoopla is basically over by the summer of 1949. I think it's meant to be 1849. Status quo remains. All right, there we go. Thank you for that. There is a longer version, but I won't go into that, but I think that's enough context for us to move forward. Jan Brunt says, The consul just gets worse and worse, doesn't he? Leaving his family during a riot to attend a business meeting, he really cares for nothing but appearances. And again, in this chapter, lots of descriptions of clothing, jewellery, and personal appearance. I've been in close proximity to riots a few times. It's a very scary experience. This guy's priorities boggle the mind. Gonardo says, we are definitely getting a picture of him as someone that doesn't have very good judgment. I'm worried about what that means for the future of the business and the choices he has made for the children. I feel like the children's fate is not in the best hands. And that's a little bit unfair to those poor kids, isn't it? So, we're up to, what are we up to? Book 4, Chapter 3 forward to that won't be a moment and then we'll get started all right there it is chapter three goes like this console Budenbrock crossed his spacious ground floor in haste coming out into Baker's alley he heard steps behind him and saw gosh the broker a picturesque figure in his long cloak and jesuit hat also climbing the narrow street to the meeting he lifted his hat with one thin long hand and with the other made a deferential gesture as he said, Well, her console, how are you? His voice sounded sinister. This broker, Sigismund Gauche, a bachelor of some forty years, was, despite his demeanour, the best and most honest soul in the world. But he was a wit and an oddity. His smooth, shaven face was distinguished by a Roman nose, a protruding pointed chin, sharp features and a wide mouth drooping at the corners, whose narrow lips he was in the habit of pressing together in the most taciturn and forbidding manner. His grey hair fell thick and sombre over his brow, and he actually regretted not being humpbacked. It was his whim to assume the role of a wild, witty and reckless intrigant, a cross between... Mephistopheles and Napoleon, something very malevolent and yet fascinating too, and he was not entirely unsuccessful in his pose. 
He was a strange yet attractive figure among the citizens of the old city. Still, he belonged among them, for he carried on a small brokerage business in the most modest, respectable sort of way. In his narrow, dark little office, however, he had a large bookcase filled with poetry in every language, and it was a story that he had been engaged since his twentieth year on a translation of Lope de Vega's collected dramas, once he had played the role of Domingo in an amateur performance of Schiller's Don Carlos. This was the culmination of his career. A common word, never, crossed his lips, and the most ordinary business expressions he would hiss between his clenched teeth, as if he were saying curses on you, villain, instead of some commonplace about stocks and commissions. He was, in many ways, the heir and successor to Jean-Jacques Hofstede, of a blessed memory, except that his character had certain elements of the sombre and pathetic, with none of the playful liveliness of that old 18th century friend of Johann Buddenbrook. One day he lost at a single blow on the bourse six and a half thaler on two or three papers which he had bought as a speculation. This was enough. He sank upon a bench. He struck an attitude which looked as though he had lost the Battle of Waterloo. He struck his clenched fist against his forehead and repeated several times with a blasphemous roll of his eyes. Ha! Accursed! Accursed! He must have been at bottom cruelly bored by the small safe business he did and the petty transfer of this and that bit of property for this loss, this tragic blow with which heaven had stricken him down, him... For the Shima Gosh delighted his inmost soul. He fed on it for weeks, some would say. So you've had a loss, her shot, Gosh. I'm sorry to hear, to which he would enter. Oh, my good friend, Uomo non educato del domor, roman sepre bambino. Probably nobody understood that. Was it possibly Lope de Vega? Anyhow, there was no doubt that this Sigismund Gosh was a remarkable and learned man. What times we live in, he said, limping up the street with the console supported by his stick. Times of storm and unrest. You are right, replied the console. The times are unquiet. This morning's sitting will be exciting. The principal of the estates. Well, now, her gosh went on. I have been about all day in the streets, and I have been looking at the mob. There are some fine fellows in it, their eyes fluming, flaming sorry, with excitement and hatred. Johann Buddenbrook began to laugh. You like that, don't you? But you have the right end of it, after all. Let me tell you, it is all childishness. What do these men want? A lot of uneducated rowdies who see a chance for a bit of a scrimmage. Of course, though I can't deny I was in the crowd when Burkemeyer and journeyman Butcher smashed her Benthian's window. He was like a panther. Her gosh spoke the last word with his teeth particularly close together and went on. Oh, the thing has its fine side, that's certain. It is a change, at least, you know, something that doesn't happen every day. Storm, stress, violence, the tempest. Oh, the people are ignorant, I know. Still, my heart, this heart of mine, it beats with theirs. They were already before the simple yellow painted house on the ground, floor of which the sittings of the assembly took place. The room belonged to the Bay Hall and the dance establishment of a widow named Sir Cringnall, but on certain days it was at the service of the gentleman Burgesses, 
The entrance was through a narrow whitewashed corridor opening into the restaurant on the right side where it smelled of beer and cooking, and thence through the handleless, lockless green door so small and narrow that no one could have supposed such a large room lay behind it. The room was empty, cold and barn-like, with a whitewashed roof in which the beams showed and whitewashed walls. The three rather high windows had green painted bars but no curtains. Opposite them there the benches sorry, opposite them were the benches, rising in rows like an amphitheatre, with a table at the bottom of the for the chairman, the recording clerk and the committee of the Senate. It was covered with a green cloth and had a clock, documents and writing materials on it. On the wall opposite the door were several tall hat racks with hats and coats. The sound of voices met the console and his companion as they entered through the narrow door. They were the last to come. The room was filled with Burgesses, hands in their trouser pockets, on their hips or in the air as they stood together in groups and discussed. Of the 130 members of the body, at least a 100 were present. A number of delegates from the country districts had been obliged by circumstances to stop at home. Near the entrance stood a group composed of two or three small businessmen, a high school teacher, the orphan asylum father, her Minderman, and her Wenzel, the popular barber. Her Wenzel, a powerful little man with a black moustache and intelligent face and red hands, had shaved the console that very morning. Here, however, he stood on an equality with him. He shaved only in the best circles. He shaved almost exclusively the Mollendorfs, Langhals, Buttonbrooks, and Overdiaks, and he owed his vote in the, the assembly to his omniscience in city affairs, his sociability and ease, and his remarkable power of decision had a division. Have you heard the la- latest, her consul? he asked with round-eyed eagerness as his patron came up. What is there to hear, my dear Wenzel? Nobody knew it this morning. Well, permit me to tell you, her consul, the latest is that the crowd are not going to collect before the town hall or in the market they are coming here to threaten the Burgess- Burgesses. Editor Rubsam has stirred them up. Is it possible? said the consul. He pressed through the various groups to the middle of the room where he saw his father-in-law with Senators Dr. Langholz and James Mollendorf. Is it true, gentlemen? he asked, shaking hands with them. But there was no need to answer. The whole assemblage was full of it. The peace breakers were coming. They could be heard already in the distance. Canale, said Leberich Kroger with, with cold scorn. He had driven hither in his carriage. On an ordinary day the tall distinguished figure of the once famous cavalier showed the burden of his eighty years, but today he stood quite erect. With his eyes half closed, the corners of his mouth contempl- contemptuously drawn down, and the points of his wide moustache sticking straight up. Two rows of jewelled buttons sparked on his black velvet waistcoat. Not far from this group was Heinrich Hagenstrom, a square-built fleshy man with a reddish beard sprinkled with grey, a heavy watch chain across his blue-checked waistcoat, and his coat open over it. He was standing with his partner Hurst Strunk and did not greet the console. Her Benthian, the draper, a prosperous-looking man, had a large group of gentlemen around him, to whom he was circumstantially describing what he had hap- what had happened to his show window. A brick, gentlemen, a brick, or at least half a brick, crack. Through it went and landed on a roll of green rep. They, the rascally mob, oh, the government will have to take it up. It's their affair. 
and in every corner of the room unceasingly resounded the voice of Hirsch Sturt from Balfounder Street. He had on a black coat over his woolen shirt, and he so deeply sympathised with the narrative of her Bentian that he never stopped saying, in outraged accents, infamous, unheard of. Johann Buddenbrook found and greeted his old friend G. F. Copen, and then Copen's rival, Consul Kistenmarker. He moved about in the crowd, pressed Dr. Grobel's hand, and exchanged a few words with Herr Giesek, Giesecki, the fire commissioner, contractor Voigt, Dr. Langhausen, the chairman, brother of the senator, and several merchants, lawyers, and teachers. Sitting, the sitting was not yet opened, but debate was already lively. Everybody was cursing the pestilential scribbler. Editor Rub Sam, everybody knew he had stirred up the crowd, and what for? The business in hand was to decide whether they were to go on with the method of selecting representatives by estates, or whether there was to be a universal and equal franchise. The Senate had already proposed the latter. But what did the people want? They wanted these gentlemen by the throats, no more and no less. It was the worst hole they had ever found themselves in. Devil, take it. The senatorial committee was surrounded, its members' opinion eagerly sought. They approached the council Brunbrook as one who should know the attitude of Burgomaster Overdiek, for since Senator Dr. Overdiek, Consul Justice Kroger's brother-in-law had been made president last year, the Buddenbrooks were related to the Burgomaster, which had distinctly enhanced the regard in which they were held. All of a sudden, the tumult began outside. Revolution had arrived under the window of the sitting. The excited exchange of opinions inside ceased simultaneously. Every man, dumb with shock, folded his hands upon his stomach and looked at his fellows or at the windows where fists were being shaken in the air and the crowd was giving vent to deafening and frantic yelling but then most astonishingly as though the offenders themselves had suddenly grown aghast at their own behavior it became just as still outside as in the hall and in that deep hush one word from the neighborhood of the lowest benches where Liebrecht Kroger was sitting was distinctly audible it rang through the hall, cold, emphatic, and deliberate, the word canale, and like an echo came the word infamous, in a fat, outraged voice from the other corner of the hall. Then the hurried, trembling, whispering utterance of the draper, Benthian, gentlemen, gentlemen, listen, I know the house, there is a trap door on the roof from the attic, I used to shoot cats through it when I was a lad, we can climb onto the next roof and get down to safety. Cowardice, hissed Gosh, the broker between his teeth. He leaned against the table with his arms folded and head bent directly, a blood-curdling glance through the window. Cowardice, do you say? How, cowardice? In God's name, sir, aren't they throwing bricks? I've had enough of that. The noise outside had begun again, but without reaching its former stormy height, it sounded quieter and more continuous, a prolonged, patient, almost comfortable hum rising and falling, now and then one heard whistles and sometimes single words like principle and rights of citizens. The assembly listened respectfully. After a while, the chairman, her Dr. Langhouse, spoke in a subdued tone. Gentlemen, I think we could come to some agreement if we opened the meeting.
Sorry, excuse me. I said to kill a spider. It's crawling across the floor of my office. Uh, if we opened the meeting. But this humble suggestion did not meet with the slightest support from anybody. No good in that, somebody said, with a simple decisiveness that permitted no appeal. It was a peasant sort of man named Fahl from the Ritzerau district, deputy for the village of Little Schretzstaken. Nobody remembered ever to have heard his voice raised before in a meeting, but its very simplicity made its weighty at the present crisis. Unafraid and with a sure political insight, her Fahl had voiced the feeling of the entire assemblage. God keep us, her Bentian said despondently. If we sit on the benches, we can be seen from outside. They're throwing stones. I've had enough of that. And the cursed door is so narrow, burst out Coppin, the wine merchant, in despair. If we start to go out, we'll probably get crushed. Infamous, unheard of, her stutter intoned. Gentlemen, began the chairman urgently once more. I have to put before the burgomaster in the next three days a draft of today's protocol, and the town expects its publication through the press. I should at least like to get a vote on that subject if the sitting would come to order. But with the excitement sorry, but with the exception of a few citizens who supported the chairman, nobody seemed ready to come to the consideration of the agenda. A vote would have to be would have been useless anyhow. They must not irritate the people. Nobody knew what they wanted, so it was no good to offend them by a vote. In whatever direction, they must wait and control themselves. The clock of Saint Mary's struck half past four. They confirmed themselves and each other in this resolve of patient waiting. They began to get used to the noise that rose and fell outside, the feel to feel quieter, to make themselves more comfortable, to sit down on the lower benches and chairs. The natural instinct towards industry common to all these burghers began to assert itself. They ventured to bargain a little, to pick up a little business here and there. The brokers sat down by the wholesale dealers, the beleaguered gentlemen talked together like people shut in by a sudden storm who speak of other things and now and then pause to listen with respectful faces to the thunder. It was five o'clock, half past five, it was getting dark. Now and then somebody sighed and said that the wife would be waiting with the coffee. And then her Benthian would venture to mention the trap door, but most of them were like her Sturt, who said fatalistically, shaking his head, I'm too fat. Mindful of his wife's request, Johann Buddenbrook had kept an eye on his father-in-law. He said to him, This little adventure isn't disturbing you, is it, father? Liebrecht Kroger's forehead showed two swollen blue veins under his white wig. He looked ill. One aristocratic old hand played with the opalescent buttons on his waistcoat. The other, with its great diamond ring, trembled on his knee. Fiddlesticks, Buddenbrook, he said, but his voice showed extreme fatigue. I am sick of it, that's all. Then he betrayed himself by suddenly hissing out, Pablo Jean, this infamous rabble ought to be taught some respect with a little powder and shot. Canal, scum. The console hummed assent. Yes, yes, you are right. It is a pretty undignified affair, but what can we do? We must keep our tempers. It's getting late. They'll go away after a bit. Where is my carriage? I desire my carriage, said the old man in a tone of command, suddenly quite beside himself. His anger exploded. He trembled all over. I ordered it for five o'clock. Where is it? This sitting will never be held. Why should I stop any longer? I don't care about being made a fool of. My carriage. 
What are they doing to my coachman? Go see after it, Buttonbrook. My dear father-in-law, for heaven's sake, be calm. You are getting excited. It will be bad for you. Of course I will go and see after the carriage. I think myself we have had enough of this. I will speak to the people and tell them to go home. Close by the little green door, he was accosted by Sigmund Gosh, who grasped his arm and said in a bony, said with a, and sorry, grasped his arm with a bony hand, and asked in a gruesome whisper, "Whither away, her consul?" The broker's face was furrowed with a thousand lines. His pointed chin almost rose up to his nose. His face expressed the most desperate resolution. His grey hair streamed distractedly over over brow and temples. His head was so drawn in between his shoulders that he really almost achieved his ambition of looking like a dwarf, and he rapped out, You behold my me resolved to speak to the people. The consul said, No, let me do it, gosh, I really know more of them than you do. Be it so, answered the broker tonelessly, you are a bigger man than I, and lifting his voice he went on, But I will accompany you, I will stand at your side, consul Bottenbrook, let the wrath of the outraged people tear me in pieces. What a day! What a night, he said, as he went out. There is no doubt he had never felt so happy before in his life. Ha, her consul, here are the people. They had gone down the corridor and outside the outer door, where they stood at the top of the three little steps that went down to the pavement. The, ste- the street was indeed a strange sight. It was a, as still as a, the grave. At the open and lighted windows of the houses round, stood the curious looking down upon the black mass of the insurgents before the Burgess's house. The crowd was not much bigger than that inside the hall. It considered it consisted of young labourers from the harbour and granaries, servants, school pupils, sailors from the merchant ships, and other people from the little streets, alleys, courts, and rabbit hutches round about. There were even two or three women who had probably promised themselves the name Millennium as the Buddenbrook's cook. A few of the insurrectionists, weary of standing, had sat down with their feet in the gutter and were eating sandwiches. It was nearly six o'clock. Though twilight was well advanced, the oil lamps hung unlighted above the street. This fact, this open and unheard of interruption of the regular order, was the first thing that really made Consul Buddenbrook's temper rise and was responsible for his beginning to speak in a rather short and angry tone and the broadest of pronunciations. Now then, all of you, what is the meaning of this foolishness? The picnickers sprang up from the sidewalk. Those in the back ranks beyond the foot pavement stood up on their tippy toes. Some navvies in the service of the consul took off their caps. They stood at attention, nudged each other, and muttered in low tones, "'Tis Consul Buttonbrook. He be going to talk. Hold your jaw there, Christian. He can jaw like the devil himself. There's Brock Gosh. Look, what a monkey he is. Isn't he getting overwrought?" Carl Smolt began the Consul again, picking out a f- and fastening his small deep-set eyes upon a bow-legged young labourer of about t- two and twenty, with his cap in his hand and his mouth full of bread standing in front of the steps here speak up Carl Smolt now's the time I've been here the whole afternoon yes her console brought out Carl Smolt chewing violently the thing is oh uh, it's a sort or oh, uh, making a revolution what kind of nonsense is that then Lord her console you know what that is we're not satisfied with things as they be 
we demand another order o tings taint any more than that that's what it is now listen Carl Smolt and the rest of you whoever's got any sense will go home and not bother himself over any revolutions disturbing the regular order of things the sacred order interrupted her gosh dramatically the regular order I say finished the consul why even the lamps aren't lighted that's going too far with the revolution Carl Smolt had swallowed his mouth full by now and with the people at his back stood with his ground and made some objections well her consul you may say that but we are only again the principle of the vote god in heaven you ninny shouted the consul forgetting in his excitement to speak dialect you're talking the sheerest nonsense lord her consul said carl smiled somewhat abashed that's all as it is revolution it has to be there's revolution everywhere in berlin in paris but smolt what do you want just tell me that if you can lord her consul i say we want a republic that's what i be saying but you fool you've got one already while her consul then we want another some of the bystanders who understood the matter better began to laugh rudely and heartily and although few even heard carl's answer the laughter spread until the whole crowd of republicans stood shaking good-naturedly some of the gentlemen from inside the hall appeared at the window with curious faces and beer mugs in their hands the only person disappointed and pained by this turn of affairs was sieg gismund gosh now people shouted consul Boddenbrook finally i think the best thing you all to do is to go home Carl Smolt, quite crestfallen over the result he had brought about, answered, That's right, her consul. Then things will be quieted down, and her consul doesn't take it ill of me, does he now? Goodbye, her consul. The crowd began to disperse in the best of humours. Wait a minute, Smolt, shouted the consul. Have you seen the Kroger carriage, the caliche from outside the castle gate? Yes, sir, her consul. He's here. He be driven up in some court somewhere. Then run quick and say he's to come at once. His master wants to go home. Servant, her consul, and throwing his cap on his head and pulling the leather visor well down over his brows, Carl Smolt ran with great, great swinging strides down the street. All right, there we go. That was one chapter. That was one chapter. I mean, for about a month. Um, we have a revolution happening, but they seem a little bit confused about it. And there was a lot of characters in that chapter. About 50,000 people. Alright, thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.